All right, so I know we had a little sound challenge there. You may not have been able to hear all of it, but you saw it, which is beautiful. And I think most everyone heard the end when Rhett dismissed the children's church. And when I asked them to, uh, and some of the kids are like, well, I hear it, we're going. When I asked them to do it, I said, "I, I want some of our kids to dismiss. You're going to start to see a little bit more, more people involved in different ways. And some of this we've seen for a long time. So we've had families, we've had individuals, we've had couples come and read Scripture, and we're going to continue to do that. And you'll see that. And that was a beautiful moment. Even if you couldn't hear every word, you know what was being said, and there is beauty there. We are going to start to have more people involved in more ways. And I'm not just excited about that. I think that's a beautiful image of the kingdom. That is what God is inviting us into and calling us into. And so uh, it's going to be different for some of us, and some of us, we've experienced that in other places. Uh, But I praise God for the voices of our church members that you're going to hear and see and the ways that God uses and works through and gifts all of us. And so you'll start to see also on a lot of Sundays different people instead of me getting up and closing us in prayer, are going to get up a variety of folks. Uh, Don't be surprised if I start reaching out to some of you and some of you who haven't done some things before, and it's okay if you tell me no. Uh, I've, I've heard that plenty of times before from lots of different folks, or it's okay if you say, can I wait a while? And that's okay too, but we're going to have someone different uh, close us in prayer this morning, and we're going to continue to see new ways that God is working through all of us as a church. We're going to spend most of our time in two passages this morning, in Romans 12 that the icorns just read from a moment ago, and you can mark that. I'm going to start with a familiar verse from Matthew 5. It's one of the Beatitudes. I'm going to read 5-9, and you can see that on the screen behind me. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So I'm going to start this morning. I want to read an excerpt from an article from the publication The Onion. And if you're not familiar with The Onion, The Onion is satire, which means when I read this, this is a joke. So don't be confused. This is the the original fake news. It's intentionally fake news. But as I read just part of this excerpt, I, I want you to keep that in mind. This is an article called, Disney World Opens New Ordeal Kingdom for Family Meltdowns. Excuse me. (coughs) Give me just a second. All right. Representatives from Walt Disney World Resort announced Monday the opening of Ordeal Kingdom, a new theme park specifically designed for full-scale family meltdowns. Situated between Epcot and Magic Kingdom, the 350-acre property reportedly incorporates many of the most aggravating elements of Disney's other parks and expands them into a creative and fully immersive world of irritation, which is said to include the longest lines in the entire resort, 
a convoluted layout that is only depicted in indecipherable cartoon maps that are not to scale, and 150% higher prices. According to park director Jacob Bartlett, Ordeal Kingdom's specialized combination of features will ensure a slowly building resentment among visiting families, eventually resulting in a dramatic public outburst followed by a silent walk back to the car. We've considered every detail to ensure parents and their kids have the heated argument of a lifetime. The park will split into five themed lands, including Fatigue Island and Hunger Lagoon, each of which can be reached by Mickey's Congestion Junction Railway. Whether it's the sheer distance between rides or the unspecified bathroom locations, every aspect of the experience is guaranteed to ratchet up the tension until you and your family are screaming at each other and saying, we should have never come here in the first place. No trip to Disney is complete without everyone in your party losing all emotional self-control. Bartlett continued, and at Ordeal Kingdom, we promise that all your wildest family blow-ups will come to life. We want your family to have a one-of-a-kind of experience while you're here, which is why Disney employees will be on hand throughout the park to wish you a magical day, said Bartlett, referring to the greeting that will begin to sound more and more like a taunt as the afternoon wears on. Plus, as one final treat, you'll find the parking lots completely unmarked, providing one last special opportunity for family members to cry, yell, and pitch a hysterical fit, regardless of how young and old they are, when it takes more than an hour to find the car. Added Bartlett, our goal is to leave every guest with memories that will last a lifetime. Okay, so... The Reynolds family has made two trips to uh, Disney World in Orlando. One was when Max was 10 months old, and the other was a couple of years ago. I think it was 2019. And sometimes Disney World lives up to the reputation that they gave themselves, the happiest place on earth. And sometimes, it looks a little more like the ordeal kingdom that I just read about, at least for the Reynolds family, which kind of begs the question, if even a place like Disney World is not immune to disagreements and emotional dust-ups, if we can't escape conflict when supposedly we are getting away from it all in this happy, idyllic place, then what are we to do? So, you've already gotten a hint by seeing the image behind me. We are starting a new series this morning, talking about what it means to be peacemakers in a world of conflict. And to begin, I just want to create some, some basic understandings of at least what I'm talking about when I talk about conflict. And I want to start with a simple definition 
of conflict. Conflict, very simply, is a situation in which two or more people have clashing ideas or actions. That's it. Just a simple, basic understanding is conflict is when two or more people have ideas that don't mesh. They clash or actions. Which brings me to the second point. If that's the understanding of conflict, then conflict will always exist. No matter how hard we try, no matter how far we go, no matter what kind of idyllic place in which we find ourselves or even create around us, you cannot escape conflict. If conflict at its core is simply two or more people with ideas or actions that sometimes butt up against one another, that sometimes clash. Whenever two or more are gathered, eventually there will be conflict, which brings me to the third idea. Well, actually, let me back up. So let me give you just a few examples of what I'm talking about that don't have to blow up. Read in the news not all that long ago that the Colorado River is not, uh, it does not have nearly as much water as it used to. And so states up and down the river and people who relied on the water up and down the river are having to ask questions that they never had to ask before about water usage about how much they can use, about how much they should use. And the way that goes, the more that's used further north, the more that's left further south. And so states and cities and businesses and people and agriculture and ranching, all of them have decisions to make. All of them have ideas about how the water should be used. But all of it has implications, not just for one person, but for people down the line. And ideas sometimes clash. There are differences. There is conflict. In the mail, within the last week, we have received at least three different flyers urging our family to vote yes on a penny tax in Little Rock. As I drove to church this morning, and almost every time I've driven to church over the last several weeks, I have seen signs up and down Henson in people's yards urging me to vote no to a penny tax. Now, as these kinds of votes go, not a lot of people are going to show up, but clearly there are folks in our town who have some strong ideas about whether we should or should not vote in a penny tax. And those ideas and the rationale and their sense that they're doing what is best for the city and, and the ideals that they represent, there's some clash. There's some conflict. Spouses are going to have ideas that clash sometimes frequently. 
And it can be something as simple as how you spend discretionary funds. Or it can be something as simple as how are we defining discretionary funds. Because what seems discretionary to one may seem necessary to another. Ideas don't always sync up. Sometimes they clash. There's conflict. Parents and teens have a clash of ideas about the best way for the teens to spend their weekend. And sometimes, eventually, parents get to the because I said so portion of the conversation. And that may end the conversation, but does that end the conflict? There's still the clash of ideas. The conflict still exists. I don't know if you know this or not. Hypothetically speaking, churches around the country, and one that I happen to be close to, is always asking questions. What does it mean to love God with all we are and love our neighbor as ourselves and serve our community and be relevant in 2021 and be faithful to the Scripture that we're all looking to, although we sometimes come to very different conclusions as to what it means, as to how we apply it, as to what carries forward into our day and what was appropriate in that day but doesn't carry forward. And sometimes we all sync up. Sometimes those ideas butt up against one another. There is a clashing of ideas. There is conflict, which leads me to the third point. Conflict does not have to include fighting. It can, but those are part of the poles of conflict. One is that it leads to fighting, that it leads to arguments and accusations and attacks. And sometimes when we think of conflict, we think of words that we lop onto, that, that we lump onto conflict. So we don't just talk about conflict, we talk about armed conflict or physical conflict. Or we think of heated conflict. Now we know that that can just be iron bludgeons iron, iron beats on iron. But there can be a sharpening that takes place, a sharpening of ideas, a sharpening of understanding, a sharpening of purpose and vision. What are we about and why do we do what we do and why do we make the decisions that we make? Some of you may have heard this before, but the Chinese word for conflict or crisis combines two different ideas or symbols. In the, in the Chinese vocabulary. And one of them is the character for danger. But the other is the character for opportunity or change point. Now, we know the danger. We know the poles, the fight or flight. But the opportunity is growth in a relationship, in a marriage, 
when you deal with it instead of deny it, and when you deal with it as two mature, healthy individuals, there's the opportunity to grow in understanding of one another, to strengthen the bonds instead of weaken the bonds, to show that you're willing to listen and see from the vantage point of another person. That you're willing to consider a way forward that's not just your way. And it may not be just their way. It may be your way together as a couple. And when we are mature and healthy in the midst of conflict, then it invites healthy questions of ourselves. Why do I do the things I do? Why do I think the things I think? Is it because that's the way I always thought? Is it the way uh, I was always taught? If I looked at it now through new eyes, through fresh lenses, would I see it differently? Or could I at least try to see it from their perspective? Is there something that I have missed? Is there some way that God would want me to grow in the midst of this. Not just them, which is easy in conflict. It's easy to see how the other person should grow, the questions they should ask. If they were acting mature, clearly they would come to this perspective. But the person who is healthy in conflict can ask those questions of themselves. How do I need to grow? What do I need to learn? What things do I need to rethink? What, what actions should I reconsider? Which brings us to one of the biggest obligations and opportunities as Christians that we face in our world of conflict. And it brings us back to the idea we heard from Jesus at the very beginning. And that is that as Jesus followers, we live as peacemakers. So you remember in the Beatitudes, every one of the Beatitudes begins with the same thing, the blessed life, the happy life, is this. And Jesus leads to peacemaking in this one. He says, when you are a peacemaker, that's when you're called children of God. And in this instance, when he's talking about being called children of God, I think what he means there is that you uh, reflect the image of God. You're like a chip off the old block. People see the family resemblance in you because God is a peacemaking God. God is a bridge-building God. God is a reconciling God. That's what Paul continues to describe Jesus as. Jesus, we know, is the Prince of Peace, but Paul describes him in the beginning of Colossians as the one who is reconciling all things, trying to repair all things, things in heaven and things on earth. God is trying to create peace where there is all of this conflict. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, that's the work of Jesus on the cross. It's peace-making work. It's bridge-building work. It's healing the world and healing relationships work. Okay, so the icorns read for us from, uh, from Romans 12 a little, a little bit earlier. 
in many ways, when you read Romans, Romans feels a lot like this sort of deep theological treatise in the first, uh, you know, 11 chapters of the book, and it is. But in my opinion, in many ways, it is a lead-up to the conversation that happens in the end. Can we live in love and in peace with one another and the world in a world filled with conflict? And so in chapter 14, there is this large discussion recognizing that in the church, among people of God, there will be times when ideas when activities, when worldviews clash. And what's interesting is sometimes when Paul is addressing the church in those moments like this, he's less concerned with the theological conclusion they come to. What he's concerned about is do you maintain your character and your faith in the midst of the disagreement? That's what the world needs to see from us. Not that we always agree, but can we be Jesus followers in action and in attitude even when we're in conflict, especially when we're in conflict? Or do we buy into the mentality, all's fair in love and war? The gloves are being dropped. It's time to get at it. Sometimes we will show our faith the most clearly when our ideas and actions clash, not just when they all align. That one's easy. Who doesn't do that? But when ideas and actions clash, will we show who we are? Will we show our character? And so he talks about in chapter 14, you don't need to be the kind of people that judge another person's servant. Who are you to judge? Who are you to deliberately act in ways that pull back love? Instead, accept one another and welcome one another. Make room for one another. And this is the kicker. He says, as Christ welcomes you. You welcome one another as Christ welcomes you. So let's look back at chapter 12. It's kind of hard if you read through chapter 12 at what times he's talking about uh, relationships with those within the church, within the community of faith, and what times he's talking about relationships with people in the community at large, especially at times who could be hostile to the early church. But either way, the calling is the same. The guidelines are the same. So look at verse 14. Even if you're in conflict with someone who's hurting you, what do you do? You bless them. You don't curse. Or verse 16, you live in harmony with everyone, which, by the way, being a peacemaker takes, he says, humility. If you think too highly of yourself, whether socially or economically or educationally, or theologically, it's easy to justify treating someone as less. It is easy to dismiss any way that their opinion differs from yours. So be humble if you want to live in harmony. Verse 17, when someone does you wrong, don't try to one-up their bad behavior. You hold on to behavior that's honorable, that's just, 
that walks in the righteousness of God. Or verse 18, you can't control what other people do. So don't use it as as an excuse. As far as it's up to you, you be a peacemaker. You can't choose their actions, but you can choose yours. So verse 19, you better leave the revenge game to God. Let Him take care of that. Instead, verse 20, what you need to do is heap love and mercy and compassion on the very people you're in conflict with. And you might just help them see the light in the process. Which is the idea of heaping burning coals. It's not like, oh, you're really going to burn them here. Although that sounds fun sometimes, let's be honest. I'd kind of like to do that every once in a while, but that's not the point. The point is you show them the light of a new way. And this comes to a crescendo, a conclusion, verse 21. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. In a world full of conflict, you have a choice to overcome it by being a peacemaker. So I want to tell you a story as I close this morning about Damon West. At one point, this was a young man who was full of promise. He was able to play quarterback while he was in college at the University of North Texas. This is an image from his final game played against uh, A&M. He also got to have an internship with a congressman who was running for president. He trained to be a stockbroker with UBS. But after graduating college, his life took a dramatic, hard turn, a downward turn. He had struggled with some addiction in college, but he became completely addicted to meth after he got out of college. Ended up living on the streets of Dallas. And to feed his addiction, he started breaking into homes in the uptown area of Dallas. And then he realized, I can't do this on my own. So he started recruiting other people into breaking into homes. By the end, he had a little criminal gang going, and they broke into at least 51 homes that was uh, identified with him and his group. So he eventually got caught. It took a jury all of 10 minutes to come back with a verdict. If it takes a jury 10 minutes, you know you're sunk. Guilty verdict. Fortunately, there wasn't violence in the midst of those crimes, or it could have been worse. But with all of that, he was sentenced to 68 years in prison. Just before he was about to be sent off to the penitentiary, his parents came and talked with him. His his dad couldn't even speak. He was so upset. And his mom was so upset, she had to speak. She said, we will always love you. But come back changed or do not come back at all. This is not who we raised you to be. Just turn back to God and whatever you do, don't turn to any of those gangs in prison, those white supremacy 
groups because everything that he had been told as it was obvious that's where he was headed, the state penitentiary, everything he had been told was if you want to survive, you've got to get in a gang. And people divide according to race in the prisons. So his mother was saying, don't you give in to the hate. Don't you become someone that you're not. He didn't know what he was going to do or how he was going to make it. Everyone was giving him the same advice until he talked with one man, an older black gentleman he called Mr. Jackson, who'd been in and out of prison multiple times. And Mr. Jackson said this, don't listen to any of them. Of course, you're going to have to stand up for yourself, but don't get dragged into hate or prejudice. What you need to do is be a coffee bean. And Damon West was like, okay, uh, what does that mean? He had no idea. And so Mr. Jackson continued. He said, I want you to imagine prison is like a pot of boiling water. And there is no question when you go into prison, you will feel the heat. But let me ask you something. He said, when a, when a carrot goes into a, a pot of boiling water, what happens to that carrot? And Wes says that, well, eventually it becomes soft. He says, if you want to survive, you can't just become soft in prison. And he says, if you put an egg into boiling water, what, what happens to that egg? He said, well, eventually it turns hard, becomes a hard-boiled egg. And he said, if you become hard on the inside, you become incapable of giving and receiving love, and you might as well stay in here because you're institutionalized. You'll never make it after that. He said, but what happens if you put a coffee bean in boiling water? Wes was like, I don't know. And he said, the bean changes the water to where you have to change the name of the water because it's not water anymore. It's coffee. No matter the heat you face, what you need to do is be a coffee bean. You change your surroundings for the better rather than having them change you for the worse. After about eight years, Wes was eventually released on parole, and he now shares that story all over the country, that, that coffee bean story. We cannot avoid the heat of conflict in this world. There will always be times in every relationship where there are ideas that don't mesh, they clash. Where there are actions that don't mesh, they clash. The question becomes, who will we be in the face of it? Will we hold on to our Christian character? Will we hold on to our Christian conviction? Or will we turn soft like the carrot? Will we lose our sense of identity, identity our sense of self, our sense of purpose? Or will we become hard like the egg? Will we become angry and cynical, and, and fury read everything we see online, and then fury type up our response in return. 
Or will we change our surroundings through peacemaking? Don't let evil conquer you. But conquer evil by doing good. There has been an endless supply of conflict in our world. And the last 18 months has turned up the heat. We can't always avoid it. But we can choose who we will be in the midst of it. And my challenge for you is my challenge for me. As I go into this week, I want to do everything I can to be the coffee bean.